Listener Production. Hi there and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. You might be one of the many heading back to work today after the holidays. I know I am. Maybe you're going back to a hybrid work situation or a co-working scenario. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones doing the four-day work week. Or maybe you're still working nine to five, five days a week. It's the end of a single standard in terms of how we work and how we define work and a new era where there's a a whole variety of options and it's up to individuals to kind of match their career to their working preferences. Mm, Sounds amazing. And in this episode of The Briefing, we'll take you into the workplace trends of 2024. Rihanna Patrick will bring you all that and more in the second half of the episode. First, let's get into today's headlines with Benson Siebert. It's Monday, January 8. Hey, Sasha. So police say five people were stabbed over a three-hour period in a series of random attacks on Saturday night into Sunday morning in Melbourne. All victims were taken to hospital, including a 31-year-old woman with serious injuries. The attacks do not appear to be terrorism-related or targeted. On each occasion, the victims were minding their own business. They wouldn't have even known that uh, they were about to be attacked. It was completely random and uh, the victims would not have expected or known that they were going to be attacked. Detective Senior Sergeant Andrew Aries there. A 31-year-old man has been arrested and will face court this morning on 15 charges. Police say there's no further risk to the public, but obviously it's an absolutely shocking incident. Yeah, absolutely. And still in Melbourne, eight rave-goers are in a critical condition after a suspected MDMA overdose at Hard Mission Festival in Flemington on Saturday night. Seven of those needed to be put into induced comas and given breathing tubes by advanced paramedics at the festival. An event like this is the equivalent of a mass casualty event. A bus accident or a large road traffic accident involves multiple patients. They would have to pull paramedics from many other parts of Metropolitan Melbourne. Victorian Ambulance Union Secretary Danny Hill there. And the union is now calling for better drug education, whether it's pill checking or pill testing, Bensian. Yeah, and I think the Victorian government will be facing some questions uh, after this because last year the state coroner recommended drug testing services be introduced following the death of a 26-year-old man in Victoria. Um, Now, it's also important to remember that deaths from MDMA and um, overdoses are actually pretty rare, especially in comparison to, for example, cocaine. But you can't know what's in the drugs unless you test them. Mm. So uh, that's that's a really important point to, to uh, mention. Yeah, and I think it's uh, one of those issues that's been bubbling along for a really long time now. But hopefully having an event like this and an incident like this where so many people are ending up really, really unwell, uh, maybe we'll see some movement from state governments on pill testing. 
Now, there are a couple of things that you can do to reduce your risk while taking MDMA. Experts say it's a good idea to avoid mixing with alcohol and other drugs. Now, the man who died in Victoria in 2022, he'd had cocaine and alcohol, as well as an extremely potent pressed pill of MDMA. Two of the major dangers from MDMA are from overheating, or from drinking a really large amount of water on MDMA, both of which are mitigated by drinking a moderate amount of water. So do that and keep safe and look after your friends. We've had more details come through about that absolutely horrifying Alaska Airlines flight that lost a chunk of fuselage at 16,000 feet on Saturday. Miraculously, there were no serious injuries, and that could be down to the fact that no one was sitting in the two seats next to the deactivated cabin door that blew out. I imagine this was a pretty terrifying event. We don't often talk about psychological injury, but I'm sure that occurred here. Such a good point. Jennifer Homendy, the head of the National Transportation Safety Board, speaking there last night, talking about the fact that, yeah, maybe there wasn't a physical injury, but the emotional toll of sitting on a plane that has something blow out midair is absolutely terrifying. We now know a probe has been launched by US federal investigators into the incident and a number of Boeing 737 MAX planes across the US, Turkey and Panama have been grounded in response. Bensian, did you see the footage of this? It was absolutely terrifying. Oh my God, I I can't even handle like a tiny amount of turbulence. It's just uh, the the idea of a a door blowing out during the flight, um, absolute stuff of nightmares. Now we do know also that all 171 passengers and six crew of the Alaska Airlines operated Boeing plane landed back safely at Portland, Oregon, which is a relief. Uh, And this incident happened on Friday night. Um, The plane was also just a few months old and it was delivered to the airline in October last year. That was something I read this morning that, uh, you know, kind of set alarm bells off. Why is a new plane, you know, having something of this magnitude happen? But that's something that the federal investigators will be looking into. And uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see the outcome of that one. Rafael Nadal has announced he's pulling out of the Australian Open after suffering a muscle tear during a warm-up match at the Brisbane International. He's been up against Aussie Jordan Thompson and took an injury timeout in the final quarter before going on to lose the clash. It's a big blow for the tennis ace, who had only just come back from 12 months off to recover from a hip injury. It's also a big blow for the AO organisers, with Nadal obviously one of the biggest draw cards to the tournament kicking off next week. Speaking of injuries, Sam Kerr has been ruled out of the English Women's Super League after rupturing her ACL. That means she's out of the action for the Matildas AFC Women's Olympic qualifying tournament round three series against Uzbekistan in February. Yeah, poor Sam. She's been hit by a lot of injuries. She just kind of overcame a foot injury that saw her sit out of some other qualifiers. Um, but I did want to talk about Alex Demonor, uh while we're speaking of, you know, tennis and Rafa having to pull out. Uh-huh. Um, All our hopes are on the Aussies. He's officially a top 10 player after he took down German star Alexander Zverev during a United Cup semi-final on Saturday. So he's actually the first Aussie man to be in that position since Leighton Hewitt in 2006. Go Demon. Incredible stuff. Yeah. 
And award season in the US is properly getting underway today with the Golden Globes, the first cab off the rank. Margot Robbie's Barbie is expected to clean up, nominated for nine awards, including Best Comedy, as well as acting categories for the Aussie and for Ryan Gosling as well. And of course, we can't forget Oppenheimer, released on the same day as Barbie last year. That's up for eight gongs. And we've also got a couple more Aussies in the running. Elizabeth Debicki for Best Supporting Actress after her portrayal of Princess Diana on The Crown. And, of course, Sarah Snook, who is up for Best Actress for her role in Succession. Benson, will you be watching? I don't think that I'll be watching the whole thing. I mean, I, I feel like I'm definitely the kind of person who waits for the news grabs and that's enough for me. But I just want to say we love Sarah Snook. She's an Adelaide person and um, I, I, just, I just hope she wins. I first saw Sarah Snook in... Um packed to the rafters a hundred years ago. And when I saw her on Succession, I was so excited. I was like, oh, this humble Aussie gal from Adelaide on the big screen in Succession. And, you know, given it's the last season that Succession had last year, hopefully uh, hopefully she gets the gong. Hey, Bensian, thanks so much for joining me. Let's get on to the future of co-working, which is up next with Rihanna Patrick. If you needed to be in an office five days a week, well, the pandemic may have disrupted the traditional ways you did that work. These days, it's not uncommon for a worker to divide their time between in-person and working remotely. Internationally, co-working has been gaining more traction as a way of continuing the social aspects of what you would get when working in an office. But will this way of working continue? Well, Jared Lindzen is a freelance journalist who's been published by the BBC. BBC, Time Magazine and Fast Company, and he writes a lot about the future of work. Jared, thanks for joining the briefing. What are the global trends of where flexible work arrangements are heading in 2024? We are seeing the convergence of a lot of different trends right now, things that have been building for a long time, especially since the pandemic, all kind of coming to a head in 2024, whether we're talking about the four-day work week the impact of generative AI on workplace trends, and of course, the open question of flexibility uh, in terms of location, you know, remote and hybrid. All of these conversations have been, you know, very front and center over the last few years. And I think there was a sense that we would find a sort of stable place by now. I think when, when the workplace started to change really rapidly in 2020 and 2021, people assumed that, you know, within a few years, there would be just some kind of normal that we could all follow, even if it was different than the old normal. And I think what we're finding now is that the options that are out there allow organizations and individuals to sort of match their needs with various working styles and arrangements. And that, I think, is the big trend. It's the end of a single standard in in terms of how we work and how we define work. And a new era where... There's a a whole variety of options, and it's up to individuals to kind of match their career to their working preferences and organizations to match their workforce structure to, you know, their needs and opportunities. Well, Jared, what is that expectation now from employees after the pandemic disrupted that in-person working week? People ask me all the time, are offices dead? Is remote work the new standard? Is remote work dead? And we're all going back to the office full-time as a lot of organizations are trying to do is the answer some sort of hybrid in between, which I think the numbers show at this point that hybrid is kind of 
emerging as the most popular option. And in my conversations with experts in, in this field and, and in other sort of related areas, what I'm finding is I think organizations are under a lot of pressure to be a leader in a lot of different areas at once, a leader in remote and you know flexible work, um, a leader in perhaps time flexibility and reduced work week, and a leader in, in compensation and competitive sort of salary and benefits. And I think employees now have an opportunity often within the same industry to find different work opportunities that match their priorities. So if you really prioritize working remotely and you're willing to take a little bit of a pay cut in order to do that, that option is, is probably going to be out there depending on your role in your industry. And, you know, same thing goes with if you want to prioritize more time flexibility or, or higher compensation, you can kind of match your needs with job opportunities that are out there, not just in sort of the old sort of standard ways of looking at career opportunities. There's new factors to add into that equation. You took a deep dive into co-working recently, and North America is often a bit ahead of Australia in terms of trends. So I'm wondering, what are you seeing in that changing space, obviously, in that wake of the downfall of WeWork, for instance? Yeah, you know, I, I was reporting on this expecting to find perhaps that the end of WeWork signified the end of co-working, uh, at least on, on a sort of broad scale. And what I ended up finding was almost the exact opposite, that every company in this space that I spoke to that isn't named WeWork seems to be doing better than ever. Co-working is looking different than it did before the pandemic, but it's still alive and well. And, and so what I mean by that is, you know, I remember when I began my career, uh, you know, 10 odd years ago, WeWork was just starting out as well. And co-working was this thing that, you know, young professionals who didn't really have a good home office setup, but were maybe freelancing or starting their own businesses or working remotely would have in sort of a downtown core, had this very young, hip, you know, experimental kind of vibe to it. It was kind of like a cool coffee shop, like cooler than the coffee shop, but still the same amenities and ideas and, you know, people coming together. Um, that is much less popular and that doesn't really suit the needs of, of the mass market for co-working space that exists today. There is still room for those trendy downtown workspaces, but co-working is emerging as something that exists more outside of the main downtown cores and isn't just this gigantic complex where people work in a huge open space and have, you know, social interactions. It's being able to, you know, have a neighborhood workstation that's got everything you need and maybe a few of your coworkers who also live in the same neighborhood all in the same space or it's the option to pop into a workspace that has everything that your desktop at home has and that workspace could be you know around the corner or on the other side of the world but it's available for you in various locations whenever you need it so Co-working still exists, but it's evolving to meet the needs of a more flexible, more remote and less sort of centrally located, concentrated market. So, Jared, does that mean that that way of co-working, for instance, is also uh, challenging the daily commute? Definitely. I, I think just about everyone is looking for ways to reduce or eliminate the commute. And like I said, not every organization is going to let people work remotely, but they should probably have other ways of enticing staff to work for them as opposed to one of their competitors. But those that do offer some degree of flexibility are looking for more flexible workspace options. And, you know, they're finding that co-working is, is kind of the best way of having a very flexible on-demand workspace 
that suits the needs of their employees, but still gives them that place to get work done. Jared, it's not just those employees that are challenging, I guess, that traditional function of an office either, but, you know, what else is changing and what are the other ways that even the way that an office might operate is changing in terms of what might be outsourced now because that is something that can exist? Totally. So, yeah, I mean, that that even goes to what I was saying before, just um, employers are making sure that their staff have the resources that they need to be effective and productive. You know, companies like uh, Regus and and, uh, their parent company, um, IWG, I I think that's the acronym. I hope I got that right. But um, basically, they have a new product that's their number one product right now, which is basically offering a digital office space. So you sign in on any computer and you have all the resources that you would get at a physical office space. That includes sort of administrative things like having a scheduling uh, sort of assistant and someone to answer your calls to, uh, you know, if you go into one of the physical workspaces, they'll have printers and scanners and and any other tools that you might not have readily available at your home office. But the idea is offering this flexible, sort of remote, global workspace that doesn't need to be anchored in any single physical location. When I think about those flexible work arrangements, I mean, the four-day working week also is included in that. So I, I wonder, I mean, how much traction is that idea of working four days a week getting around the world? It's in a very interesting place because a lot of people still dismiss the idea as fringe. And you can make a pretty good argument that this isn't anywhere close to mainstream. Now we're seeing experiments and studies and really like the the foundational resources being put in in a lot of places that might suggest that it could be a really big deal in the future. Um, So, you know, here in Canada, uh, where I'm based, there was a recent survey which found that something like 85% of managers believe that the four-day work week will be standard within the next five years, even if only a single digit percentage of them are actually taking steps to implement it today. So there's kind of this broad recognition that this is possible and realistic and doable. And there's more and more academic research and studies and pilots, including some in Australia um, and really every corner of the world that say that, you know, most organizations that do this and, and do it the right way and those who really put the effort behind it can make it work. And making it work comes with a heck of a lot of benefits, a lot more benefits than costs. Well, what do you think would make it work? The biggest misconception is people think that you can just eliminate a day and expect people to get the same amount of work done um, or more, which a lot of these studies say, you know, employees can get as much or more work done in four days than five, but it's really only under the right circumstances. And those circumstances can take a really long time to build. So taking a step back, the four day work week movements, and, you know, this is from the people who are really pushing in and at the forefront of this, they're not going to tell you that just taking away a workday by its own virtue adds productivity. Instead, they say that implementing a four-day work week or another kind of reduced work schedule requires months of planning and pinpointing opportunities to increase productivity, which I think if you ask most workers, you know, where are the bottlenecks in your department, in your role? And so organizations that plan to switch to a four-day work week We'll spend months bringing on new technologies, new processes, new norms, new ways of working that actually allow their employees to get more done in less time. And the incentive for doing so 
is reducing the work week. So it's also an acknowledgement that in the past, you know, a lot of these movements towards hyper productivity were missing one pretty important ingredient, and that was enthusiastic employee buy-in. You know, if you tell employees, we found a way for you to be 10% more productive, um, and if you do it really well, your reward is 10% more work, you're not going to get a lot of enthusiastic buy-in. But if you say, we found a way for you to be 10%, more productive. And if you follow these steps, which won't be easy, but if you follow these steps, you'll get that extra day off. You get the big benefit that comes with being more productive. You'll find a lot of people will find ways to be uh, a lot more productive. And, and, you know, it also requires managers giving permission for employees to say no to meetings that they don't think are necessary or effective or to just take this step that they know saves time without having to go through layers of approvals. Uh, you know, these sorts of productivity maximizing efforts are a major necessary precursor to a successful transition to a shorter work week. And I think that's the big piece that people uh, are missing when they talk about it. And once that realization comes and once AI really supercharges our ability to be productive, to get rid of those really time consuming and unnecessary tasks, it'll become even more feasible. That's Jared Lindzen there, a freelance journalist who writes regularly about the future of work. And I definitely understood Jared when he talked there about the changes to the daily commute. As a freelancer, I also have a part of the job which I need to do where I have to physically be in an office for part of the working week. I can definitely relate to just wanting to work locally and not spending that time commuting to where that office is based. Thanks, Rihanna. And that is it for this morning. And make sure you check your feed at the Savo for the first episode of our special series on starting 2024 with a healthy financial future. That app will be in your feed at 3pm. And we'll be back tomorrow morning at 6. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Briefing, maybe you've got an idea for an episode or you'd like to have your say on something we've spoken about, go to our Instagram page and send us a message. Simple as that, The Briefing on Instagram. Instagram. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Listener.